But we are in Psalm 110. As we look at this psalm, can't help but think of our present day situations in our world. Don't we live in a chaotic world, wouldn't you say? Chaotic world of rulers and nations vying for power. I mean, different countries that are kind of flexing their muscles. Different Rulers seeking to determine what is right, what is wrong. As we come to Psalm 10, we have to put this in the perspective, just like Israel did, as this is their psalm book, that the world is a scary place. The world is a scary place to live in. If you don't believe that, you can just watch the news, but I think in our context, it would probably be safer to say we need to watch less of it. <laughs> but regardless of what we see circumstantially in the world around us, even in our own country, we are going through nothing new that God's people have not already gone through in the history of the people of God. The people of Israel themselves would have to look at Psalm 110 with the same hope and the same looking past circumstances that we must today. As we, as we saw last week, as Dennis preached from Psalm 2, and I have not yet listened to his sermon, so maybe we'll just be repeating the same things. I don't know. But there is only one ruler on the throne. And the Scriptures tell us that His kingdom will last forever. Not four years. Not a lifetime. But forever. And today we're going to look at this parallel psalm to Psalm 2. And that's why we're jumping from 2 to 110. Because these two go so nicely together. And Psalm 110 is going to expand upon what we saw last week from Psalm 2, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the King. Now this psalm that we are going to read, it is very, very important in the Bible. In fact, it is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. The New Testament authors keep going back to this psalm as they declare the gospel to, to those who are without faith and also to those that are in the faith. There's a continual going back to Psalm 110 because it is so important. In fact, as we're going to see in just a bit, Jesus himself quotes this psalm. So the question as we begin is, is, is this, what should our heart attitudes be to this psalm? Or another way of putting it, what should our heart posture be as we come to this psalm? A few words that I, have, that I thought of to describe what our heart attitude should be, it should be one of submission. That as we come to this psalm, 
Our hearts are submissive in humility to the one true King. This psalm, we should come to this song with hope that what we see around us is not the end of the story. One of joy that one day we will see the full victory of Christ. It should be one of confidence. It should be one of worship. You see, Jesus is indeed on the throne and He will make every wrong right and He will make all things new. That's our hope. So what truth does this psalm present for us? And and here's the key truth that we are going to hopefully, Lord willing, really hammer down and ask the Holy Spirit to hammer down in our hearts this morning. The truth that we must place our faith and hope in God's appointed ruler. You see, placing your faith and your hope in God's appointed ruler is not just an issue of being saved, that you do that once in your life and then you're good to go. No, in the life of a Christian, we are every day turning from self, humbling ourselves, and placing our faith and hope in God's appointed ruler. In this psalm, we're going to see in no uncertain terms, show us who God declares His Son to be. This morning, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, we are going to look at three simple truths of who Jesus is. Jesus, in verses 1 to 3, is God's declared king. In verse 4, we see that Jesus is also God's declared priest. And then the last three verses of this psalm, verses 5 to 7, show us that Jesus is God's instrument of justice. So with that in mind, with this truth in mind, we must place our faith and hope And God's appointed ruler, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to look at Psalm 110. Let's pray. Lord, would you guide us this morning? Lord, lead us in your truth, for your word is truth. Father, would you give us that faith and that hope to once again in our lives submit ourselves under your ruler and his rulership lord there's no greater there's no more joyous there's no more peaceful place to be lord would you open our thoughts as we are completely dependent upon you as we look at psalm 110 and we pray this in jesus's name amen truth number one Jesus is God's declared king. Why must we place our faith and hope in God's appointed ruler? Because God has declared him to be the one and only king. Look at what verse 1 says here, Psalm 110, and the, 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 the superscription there, you see at the beginning a psalm of David. David writes this psalm. And it says here, the Lord says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What we see about Jesus being God's declared king is, first of all, he is indeed the appointed king. He is appointed at the word of the Lord. The psalm opens by saying, the Lord. And and if you look in your Bible, there's two lords that are mentioned here in the first line. One Lord, and, and, and your English Bible is all caps, right? And then the second one is not. And that's because there's two different Hebrew words that are being used here. The first one is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. It's God's covenantal name. So the faithful, covenant-keeping God of Israel. And remember, because we are in Christ, we too are a part of spiritual Israel. The covenant-keeping God has declared this to be so. As much as He keeps all of His promises, this is what He is declaring. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, if this is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and then the second word, Lord, that is a more generic word. It means master or one who is superior Who is he talking about? In fact, this this psalm was very confusing and and the Pharisees didn't quite even understand it. So is is the second Lord that's being referred to in verse 1, is this speaking of David? David is the king of Israel as he writes this. David is, is penning this song But it says here, my Lord, so it can't be David. This has to be someone else other than David. Well, as you know, and as I know, as we have the entirety of Scripture, this is no one else other than Jesus. The descendant of David. David is saying, he's looking at One of his descendants that David knows will one day sit on his throne and rule and reign forever. And it says, the Lord says to my Lord, someone greater than I will ever be. You may say, Pastor Adam, how do you know? Well, in Matthew 22, the Scriptures say this, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Or the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's our psalm that Jesus is quoting here. And then Jesus says this, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? I mean, David would be speaking of someone greater than himself, right? The son would be calling David Lord, right? Well, the Pharisees are unable to answer. It says, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It's kind of a mic drop right there. So what we see here 
is that not only is Jesus one of David's descendants, he was greater than David because he was, the, he was and is the true king. And this true king, according to this verse, has been appointed by the word of the Lord. Now we would quickly skim past that that word says, but did you know that that word says, it is used in the Old Testament as a prophetic declaration. The same way that the prophets would say, thus says the Lord. This is an announcement, as one has said, of the will and plan of God, and it ensures the certainty of its being fulfilled. It doesn't matter who is on the throne of any earthly kingdom in this world. Jesus is the true sovereign king. Does that bring comfort to your heart? Does that put things in our world into a little bit more of a perspective? You see, not only is Jesus appointed as king at the word of the Lord, but Jesus is given full authority. Verse 1 continues, what does Jesus say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So where is Jesus seated? At God's right hand. This is a place of authority. In, in, in Psalm chapter 2, if you have a marker there, I'm going to quickly read verses 4 to 6. Psalm 2, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. In other words, it doesn't matter the rebellion of human kingdoms or mankind. God is not intimidated by these things. He laughs in the heavens and says, there is only one king and I have appointed him. He is at God's right hand. Now, now when did this happen? When was Jesus placed and seated at the right hand of God. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because once again, the New Testament comes back to, 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 to quote Psalm 110. Uh, Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he says this, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see, Jesus was placed at the right hand of the throne of God and he is ruling in heaven and will one day come and rule on the earth. And this happened at his ascension to heaven. 
Jesus is ruling and reigning now. Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 21, it says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, and get this, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Jesus is the true king. Until you realize that, for this world, and for your own lives. You will never be at the place of comfort and peace and submission. He's placed at God's right hand this hand of strength and notice that God has also declared him to be victorious. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. As you know, Jesus will defeat every enemy. This battle, it's nothing new. We read about it all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have this imagery of the foot crushing the enemy. And that's what we have here. All enemies will be made Jesus' footstool. Every single one. Tim is going to be speaking next week on Psalm 8. Psalm 8.6 says, You have given Him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. That is ultimate victory that the true Son of Man will accomplish. We just did a long series in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25, For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. He is the ruling, reigning king. And there is not a single enemy that will not be conquered. The Bible says death itself will be that final enemy that's, just, that's destroyed. Maybe you're sitting here today and worry is flooding your mind, fears, concerns, you're looking at what's ahead and you're thinking, what am I going to do? Can I ask you this morning, are you remembering the ruling, reigning King? Not just in this world, but in your life? The end of the story has been written. Now, the hard part is, is that we're not at the end of the story yet. So, you know, what are, what are all the other chapters in between that end of the story? And that's where we're called to live by faith, not by sight. But are we bowing the knee to King Jesus? Are we coming to our King in faith and hope? You see, Jesus is God's appointed King not yourself. Not 
your agenda. Not the way you think things should be. But verse 2 also shows us that not simply is he an appointed king, but he is indeed the ruling king. Verse 2 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. And here's God's declaration. Rule in the midst of your enemies. We see several things here. Number one, Yahweh extends His mighty scepter. Literally, um, this verse reads in the original languages, the staff of your strength, Yahweh extends. In other words, it's highlighting the staff of strength. Think of Moses in Egypt, and he has the staff of God in his hand that is declaring the power of God over Egypt and creation. You see, Psalm 108, verse 8 tells us that Judah is indeed God's scepter. And it's the one who will come from Judah. The Lord extends this mighty scepter. And it shows us, number two, that Jesus will rule over His enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. At the end of verse 1, it says, until I make your enemies your footstool. We know that the day is coming when all sin and death will be completely destroyed. But even as we await that day, this psalm shows us that, that, that Jesus is ruling even in the midst of His enemies. In the midst of confrontation. So should we fear God's enemies? No. Should we take them seriously? Yes. And I think that is sometimes the hard thing that we have in life, whether we look at politics, whether we look at personal struggles, whether we look at anything. Yes, we take things seriously, but that should not lead us to despair or fear. You see, Jesus is an appointed king. He is a ruling king. And look at what verse 3 shows us. It says, your people, guess what? That's you and me. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now this is kind of a confusing verse uh, to, to understand. But the heart of what verse 3 is saying is that Jesus, He's an appointed king, He's a ruling king, and He is a worshipped king. And He is worthy of your worship and my worship. Verse 3 shows us that God's people will freely follow Him. In fact, that word will offer themselves freely that's the Hebrew word of a free will offering. You read about this in, in, in Leviticus and in Numbers that the people, um, just to worship God, just because, they would go to the temple, the tabernacle, and they had complete freedom to simply offer a free will offering to God in love and worship. Well, we see here that our coming King as He is currently ruling in the midst of His enemies, as He is going to one day once for all destroy all of His enemies, 
His people are presenting themselves as a free will offering to God. We want to follow Christ. What does Romans 12 say? I beseech you, brothers, beseech you, sisters, by the mercy of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. You see, we are not the ones that are, that are winning the battle. We are simply following the one who will fight the battle. Just as we read in Revelation 19. Uh, the saints of God will, will be with Jesus, but Jesus is the one who is destroying all of his enemies. You see, we have the privilege to be God's people, and we are called both now and forever to present ourselves freely to him. A lot of people can say, you know what? If push came to shove, I think I would die for Jesus. But the more realistic question is, are you willing to live for him? Are you willing to present yourself to him? And man, there is such hope here because look at what verse 3 says. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. This day of, of God's reign and final victory over his enemies. And then it says, in holy garments. More, more precisely, you could translate this, in the splendors of holiness. Now this verse is a little bit vague. Is, is it talking that, that we will be in holy garments in splendors of holiness? Or is this talking about Jesus the King? And the answer is yes. You see, God's people will be like their King. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that what the Bible tells us in the New Testament? That that. that uh, he will, Jesus will receive his bride pure and spotless, without blemish. This is a description of, of the Lord in other places in the Psalms. In Psalm 29, verse 2, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Same term that we have in Psalm 110. Psalm 96, verse 9, Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. You see, we will one day be like our Lord. We will reflect His splendor as we follow Him. And then the last part of this verse gives us hope that a new day is coming. Lots of people try uh, talk about this verse because it's, it's, a, it's a confusing verse even to translate, or the, the end here. But it says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And what I want us to notice is the, 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 the words of description here. Womb. What does womb imply? It implies new birth, right? It implies new life. 
What does mourning imply? A new day. A new start. And then we keep reading. From um, the dew. What, 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 do you, what do we think of dew? It's associated with mourning, right? A new day. There is dew on the ground. It is the beginning of something new. The dew of your youth. Again, youth. Newness. Youngness. Something new is occurring. You see, what we have being described here is that Christ will bring in one day a new dawn. A new age in which He will rule and reign with His people. That is what we have to look forward to. That is our hope. We are not looking as God's people to 2024 when maybe there will be a new president. And I don't know about you, but I am not looking forward to 2024 with all of the hubbub of politics, politics, and, and all of this about this candidate and that candidate. I think we need to, to prep ourselves, to guard ourselves against bitterness and against getting hung up on the wrong things. As a church and individually, let's not let politics be this source of division and controversy. Because we're not looking to 2024, we're not looking to 2028, we are not looking to any of those things. I didn't say those things don't matter. But we are looking for this new dawn, this new age, whereas Jesus prayed, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we have being described here. This is our hope. Jesus is God's declared king. But then there's something very interesting that happens here. Psalm 110 now presents this new facet to the Messiah that are not in, that is not in Psalm 2. You see, this one day ruler over God's people, he will not simply be a king. There's a whole other facet to his reign. We see number two that Jesus, the true king, is God's declared priest. Now this is shocking, and and this I think would have confused the people of Israel because when you read in the Old Testament, the king of Israel was not allowed to be a priest. Now, David kind of comes close and pictures this coming king priest. It talks about David wore a linen ephod, which was uh, on one occasion, which was um, the clothes of a priest. But God said that to be a priest, you had to be a part of the tribe of Levi. You could not be the king and also be the priest. In fact, one king, I believe it was uh, uh, Uzzah, Um, or Uzziah, that he attempted to offer incense as a priest would um, in, in the temple, and he was struck dead. 
But here we have a king who's also a priest. And it says here, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. But then it says, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. So here we see in verse 4, God's declared priest, similar to verse 1 where the Lord decrees this. In verse 4, the Lord, or God, Yahweh, he swears an, an oath. We see an oath from God. This is a covenantal oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That word change his mind uh, could also be translated repent. This will not change. This is an irrevocable oath. And from this oath, we see a new priesthood, an eternal priesthood. And it is after the order of Melchizedek. We don't have time to get into it, but if you want to read about Melchizedek, you can read Genesis 14. He was a real person who was the king priest of Salem, which later would be Jerusalem. The book of Hebrews, chapter 7, we're going to, um, uh, Eric is going to read a passage of, of Hebrews dealing with Melchizedek during our communion service. The author of Hebrews shows us that Melchizedek represented a new priestly order that had no beginning and no end. The application here is Jesus is our ruler and also our high priest. Listen, do you want to know why verse 3 is true? Do you want to know why God's people will offer themselves freely on the day of Christ's power that they will not stand in, uh, in opposite, opposition against Jesus? Do you want to know why Jesus' people will one day be clothed in holy garments or garments of splendor? Because Jesus is our high priest. We follow Him because of His high priestly work that He and He alone went into the holy of holies of God's presence and presented the blood of a perfect sacrifice for me and for you. You see, we follow Jesus not, not because of just some decision that we made. We follow Jesus because he has paid everything and he presents us to the Father. As we close today, I want to look at one final aspect of who our Jesus is. He is God's appointed king. He is God's declared priest. I mean, don't want to harbor on this, but man, we could spend all day. Think of it. Jesus is our high priest in the presence of God this very morning interceding for us. Those struggles you're facing today, those situations you're going under, those, those things that you are not even aware of that the enemy wants to destroy you with, Jesus is pleading for you. He's saying, Lord, Satan would love to sift and insert your name as wheat 
But Father, I am praying for, insert your name. That's the high priestly work of Jesus. The one who is going to rule the nations is the one that is desirous to rule your heart. But number three, Jesus is God's instrument of justice. As the court lingo says, mark it down, justice will be served. There is no injustice that will go without retribution. Verses 5 and 6 of this psalm show us God's enemies will be destroyed. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Now this is very similar to what we see here in verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And in verse 5, it gets a little confusing because it says the Lord is at your right hand. Uh, We have the lower caps there. Um, so it's, are, are, are we referring to Yahweh or are we f- referring to Jesus? And it's meant to be vague because both are at play here. It seems according to context that most likely it's saying that while Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God, God is also at the right hand of His Son empowering Him. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. Are we talking here about about Yahweh, about Jesus? The answer once again is yes. Who is doing the shattering? Both are. You see, Yahweh is is at the king-priest's right hand. It's a very similar sense to what David writes in Psalm 16.8. David says this of himself. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With Him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You see, God's agenda will go through with His appointed Messiah because God is at the right hand of His Son. Yahweh is strengthening and working through His appointed ruler And all will stand accountable to this appointed king-priest. Verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. That's pretty descriptive, wouldn't you say? Behold the justice of God. And God's appointed instrument of justice is His Son. Kings will be shattered. The day of His wrath is what we read of in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord that is coming in fierce judgment. Numbers 24, 17, Balaam, the wicked prophet, he prophesies this of the one who was to come from Judah. I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will arise out of Israel. He will crush 
Again, that's the same word we have in verse 5. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheph. This is once again a reference back to Genesis 3.15, talking about this battle of the seeds and the one who is to overcome. Kings will be shattered. Verse 6 shows nations will be judged. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And then look at the end here. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Once again, for the second time in two verses, we have this word shatter. This word chiefs is interesting. It can also be translated heads. And there's really a double sense here. This word chiefs or heads, in your English translation, it's in the plural, but in the Hebrew, it's a singular term, chief or head. Now, now what the author, what, what, what David is doing here is he's talking about that collectively the leaders of the world are, are, are seen as a collective group and, and Jesus is going to crush every single ruler that tries to exalt themselves above him. But there's a deeper sense here. There is a singular head behind all of the rulers of this world. And who is that? It's Satan. The prince of the power of the air. And Satan too will be forever destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus is victorious. Can I ask you again, where is your hope? You see, as we look at this God's instrument of justice, all of God's enemies will be destroyed. And what's going to happen? God's ruler will be exalted. Verse 7 in, in descriptive language says, He will drink from the brook by the way. Here you have the picture of, of a, 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 a king, a leader. Think book of Joshua here. We're going to be doing a series in Joshua in the fall. Think of a ruler that is actively pursuing his enemies. What's going to happen as he actively pursues? In human terms, and, and David is writing in human terms to describe something um, even of more significance, uh, the, 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 the pursuer gets weary, Right? And how would God provide for, for Israel's armies? He would provide that there would be brooks. There would be, there would be uh, you read of honey that, that, Josh, that, that Jonathan would eat and he was revived. You picture this ruler that is gaining sustenance from God, drinking from the brook while he is continuing to pursue his enemies. God is strengthening him. And then it says, therefore, he will lift up his head. This word head is the same word as chiefs in verse 6. And what it is saying is that Yahweh is going through his son to destroy all of the wicked heads of, these, of, of, of earthly nations. And he is exalting the head of his own son. Folks, that is our hope. So as we close today, our time is up.
want to present some application questions to you. Number one, none of this is new, what we have taught, not, uh, we've alluded to this already, but who is your king? Who is ruling your heart? Are you living under the rulership of King Jesus? Are you sitting here today, and man, maybe you're playing a great game, but you are not, you, you're not a follower of Jesus. If Jesus was to return today, you would be in the description of the enemy, not the one who is freely offering himself. Whether believer or unbeliever, today is the day to submit yourself to Jesus' rulership. Second question, similar to the first, but are you living as if Jesus is God's appointed ruler? I mean, is your life characterized that, boy, I mean, do you even believe that you have a sovereign God that you're serving? Is your life, is my life one where, man, our actions are betraying our beliefs? We say one thing and do another. We say we trust in God. We say that, that He's in control. But man, we are living as if, he, as if we're in control as if we have to figure every other, everything out, as if we have to cross every T, dot every I. Because if we don't do it, how will He? In everything you do, whether you're eating, drinking, whatever you do, are you seeking to bring glory to Him? And then lastly, are you looking to the true King to right all wrongs? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You don't need to, nor should you be your own judge, jury, and executioner for all of the wrongs that are done to you and what you see around you. We are to pursue justice just as we know God's heart is a heart of justice. But as His people, we can only do so much. And we have to say, Lord, help me to pursue Your calling in my life. But Lord, You're going to be the Savior, not me. So as we conclude... Psalm 110 teaches us that we must place our faith and hope in God's appointed ruler. Is that true of your life? 